Hello and welcome to lecture 2A of MGI 514 Project Management Leadership. My name is Brenton Birchmore. This discussion explores some of the more traditional views on leadership styles in a general sense. Leadership is often thought of as a very subjective and amorphous idea. It means different things to different people and it can be difficult for people to accurately define and describe precisely what they mean as types or styles of leadership. If we do a Google search and try to find a number of different articles or books or documents or studies on leadership, we will find a very long list of adjectives trying to describe different kinds of leadership. We'll see things like autocratic, pace-setting, transformational, delegative, authoritative, transactional, participative, coaching, democratic, affiliative, laissez-faire, strategic, bureaucratic, visionary, servant, charismatic situational. There are a lot of overlaps and a lot of blurred lines between a lot of these descriptions and words. To avoid trying to nail down all of these, we're going to pick a list of seven that give us at least an opportunity to describe some of the characteristics that might appear to be different between them. Even this list that we're about to cover is a subjective arbitrary choice, but it gives us a starting point that lets us maybe find a pattern or a matrix that we could then start to put any leadership style into perspective. The first is the democratic, participative or inclusive styles of leadership. These tend to listen to others, to provide a degree of trust, to want to empower others. It's more about removing obstacles and encouraging collaboration between different team members or between team members and leaders. It has team members actively involved in decisions, not just the decisions that affect them, but also others. So it tends to be more communicative. It tends to be more open and inclusive. Similarly, a laissez-faire or delegative style of leadership goes even further in the direction of getting out of the way, a higher level of trusting others. It's very hands-off in nature. So it's really about letting people do their thing, and trusting them even more to do it. So this has the lowest level of interference, but it does rely on a high level of competence and effectiveness of the team. Because it offers the least amount of guidance, it needs the team to be largely self-guiding. In a very different direction, transactional leadership styles, they're more like a management mentality. Transactional styles rely on external consequences rewards and punishments, and it assumes that there is not enough motivation from the team within themselves, and so the motivation is provided through these external consequences. So it can tend to be a little bit more predictable and routine and procedural. It can rely heavily on clarity of roles and responsibilities, often with clear goals, not needing or even accepting a great deal of input from the team members, and it can be a little bit micromanagement. In a similar way, a bureaucratic leadership style is all about following the rules and the procedures. It's often meant to try and lower the risk. It listens, but the company comes first. The top-end goals, the predictability on how we're going to do things, it's not necessarily innovative, and it's often resistant to change. And its purpose is more about making sure that everything ticks like a clock. 
This can be somewhat similar to visionary or authoritative leadership. This is also often referred to as authoritarian leadership in some areas, but others will say there's more of a difference. Authoritarian is just people saying, do as I tell you, don't worry about why. But authoritative or visionaries are ones that rely on the vision to be the power of the throne, and they have a strong vision, a clear vision, and a great deal of self-belief in their interpretation of that vision. So visionary leaders, authoritatives, they tend to accept the team more like followers because they must be in the front. They must be the one creating the inspiration, being personally involved, personifying the vision and what everyone around them is expected to achieve. They're often involved and supportive, but only if it's in support of the vision. Another goal-oriented style of leadership are those like pace-setting or strategic leadership. These also work closely on the goals. They often bring about greater pressure. They might be focused on KPIs. And strategic leadership in particular is focused on the strategic input, the role and oversight of executive decision-making. So that style is specifically trying to carry out the will and the strategy from the executive level via the team. Pace setting, well, it might not really worry as much where the goals come from as long as we meet them. So they're both usually more ambitious, expectation oriented. It's often not just about success, but perhaps about excess. And this can sometimes create higher levels of stress in the team. Another goal oriented style that's perhaps less stressful is transformational leadership. This has an emphasis on the change. It's goal-oriented, but typically the goal is a more radical transformation and a loss of the norms and familiarities that we have. So it often needs to be inspiring. It often needs to get buy-in from the team. It's future-looking, and it often supports people on the journey of change that they all need to go through. So there's some clear similarities between some of these styles and the way they're described and what they appear to be doing. So, for example, what would we say is the difference between a strategic style, a pace-setting style, and a transformative style? They might, perhaps, have more in common than they have differences. They all look at long-term or the future results to some extent. They're all goal-oriented to some extent but they vary in where their power comes from. Does their power come from authority or from a mandate? Strategic leadership styles come from the executive. It's there to primarily support the will of the executive. They have a high level source of their power. It comes from the executives. And so it's very authority oriented in where its power comes from. At the other end, transformational styles come from more from a mandate. People need to change themselves, and change actually requires those people to be on board with it. So it's often more of a facilitator of change rather than an enforcer of someone's will. It therefore needs to have much more of a mandate, buy-in, support, and followership from the team. Pace setting might be in between. The goals might come from above, but how we achieve them might rely heavily on working with the team, getting the team on board, 
getting them to participate in what needs to happen in order to achieve the aggressive goals. Now, these are still just labels, a way to try and define styles that do often overlap or blend. No one leader is ever that clearly defined. We can't put people in pigeonholes. We can't be the same leader day in, day out. Situations, challenges, and in particular, the different domains of project leadership require different attributes or different styles to work effectively. What we can look at instead, perhaps, are the scales of both the source of their power and the way in which they make their decisions. So as we've already covered, power can be authority, given from above or external, or it can be a mandate, given from below by those who are accepting of their leader. This forms one axis of a matrix that can let us plot different leadership styles along that axis. A second axis is in how their decisions are made. Are they centralized or distributed? Centralized is where the leader or those whom the leader represents do most of the decision making. Decision making is typically controlled, handful of people involved, and the team is not that actively involved in decisions, even when they're about their own work. They're not that included in what happens or how. A decentralized decision system involves the team a lot more in decisions. Their input and advice is used more, is sought after even more, even on things that they're not actively involved in. So two axes, power from authority or from mandate and decision-making, centralized versus distributed. An example of an authority-based centralized decision-making might be authoritative or visionary or perhaps transactional leadership. An example of authority-based but distributed decision-making might be things like strategic leadership or transformative leadership. Mandate-based styles, but still with a centralized leadership, might be pace-setting or coaching styles or bureaucratic styles. And a mandate style that is distributive in its leadership might be a laissez-faire or democratic style. We don't always need to agree on the exact label of the leadership style, but we might be able to agree on its place in these two important axes. With this, we will know enough about how to use each style the best, when to emphasize it, or when to avoid or limit its potentially negative effects. This is the end of lecture 2a. Hello and welcome to lecture 2b of MGI 514 Project Management Leadership. This is Brenton Birchmore and we're here now to define and explore the domains of project management leadership and where our leadership differs in different ways depending on those domains. But first, what do we mean by a project leadership domain? These are areas in which we apply our leadership slightly differently where our strengths and weaknesses in our leadership will manifest differently because of the different ways we need to go about it. They are domains in that they define areas of influence or areas of control, areas of responsibility, areas of interaction, areas of outcomes and results 
that we need to think about as a project leader. And they require slightly different aspects of our leadership skills to be applied. We need to think differently in each of these areas. Now, there's eight broad domains. The list is governance, value, engagement, communications, reporting, methodology, resources, and innovation. These are vertical areas where we'll do a variety of leadership style things, often differently from each other. So we don't consider something like decision-making as a leadership domain, since decision-making is gonna happen in all areas. We make decisions in all of those different categories above, but we make them differently depending on the domain in which we are making them. We wouldn't, for example, describe stakeholders as a domain, since all of that list above needs stakeholders, needs their management, needs their interaction, but differently. So it's different to what we consider as a project management domain, because that's a much more practical group of activities. Let's go through them and explain them each in more detail. Governance is about the execution of the strategy. It's the role that executive decision-making or executive leadership has in project management. It's about the assurance, making sure that our project is keeping to the strategy. And therefore, it's about risk, risk management, risk treatment. This role ensures that the project is staying within the confines of what the executive, often the business or the organizational executive, has defined as being the strategy of the business overall. And therefore, the strategy, role and purpose of the project, or more specifically, its outcomes and benefits. And what role does that play in the fulfillment of the strategy? The projects and project management exists to execute that strategy, to bring about the new things that don't already exist. And governance is about making sure that that stays true according to that initial strategy. This is also where the executives of the organization more broadly have a voice into the project and how it functions. But governance is also a feedback loop back to the executives on the signals that are showing threats to the value or to the benefits realization and therefore threats to the execution of their strategy. Things that they might need to consider that might even mean that they alter some aspects of their strategy because of that feedback loop and what they learn about what's really going on or coming out of this project. Here also lie the corporate risks and the corporate's appetite for risks because the project inherits that risk appetite and that risk attitude. It needs to be aligned. We can't have a project that's willing to take risks that the company generally wouldn't approve of or vice versa. We must be sure that the project is in line with that commercial appetite. We use governance to make sure risks are found, identified, investigated, and properly treated. Ultimately because we wanna make sure that the strategy gets executed. The second domain is value. Here, we're talking about everything to do with the benefits, the results, the outcomes, the justification of those benefits. So it includes things like the business case, 
and the realization and bringing to life of those benefits in practical terms. So it includes the adoption of those benefits, which means there is a relationship here with even change management to make sure that the benefits are fully realized because until they are, they're not really providing the results that the project was expected to deliver. So everything to do with the delivery of value is going to have a certain attitude around it in when we deal with it. Business justification is often an endless cycle in projects. We always need to keep an eye on the value equation. Is this really going to deliver what we want? Is it still going to deliver what we want? And if what we want starts to change, we need to be aware of that as well. This is understanding the value of the benefits that are intended to be delivered. And this value needs adoption. It needs to be understood. It needs to be clarified. And if it's threatened, it needs to be updated. The benefits realization might include the users. Users need to use it. The business needs to embrace it. Policies need to change. Practices need to change. And this is where the change management has a role to play in the value equation. Thirdly, engagement. We need to have the buy-in of a variety of stakeholders. We need to have their support. And when we can't get their support, we at least need their tolerance. We want to be able to create optimism surrounding this project, the work being done in it, the requirements that it has of everyone, and the results that it's expected to deliver. So expectation management is part of our engagement activities. It's where we make sure that not only is everyone satisfied with where things are going, but that they know exactly what is expected and we don't get misalignment from their engagement. And this can change over time. We might need to change the way in which people are engaged or change their expectations or understanding of what it is they're supporting or the level of support and contribution they might need to make. We always need the buy-in of all of the stakeholders. We need to help them understand the project understand its benefits, understand the business case, and understand the value that the project is meant to bring. The fourth domain is communications. Information needs to flow. We need to make sure that everyone involved has the understanding that they need to perform their function, which the project requires of them. So they need to be aware of things, aware of in the existence of information, and aware of it in a timely manner. Communications is what we use to give instructions, to set parameters, to provide inputs and information into decisions, but also to set expectations. And these could be expectations for small granular things like a work parcel or an activity that needs to happen in a certain way at a certain time. Or it can be bigger expectations. It's making sure that the information is accurate, available when it's needed, and that it creates the right understanding in order to influence all the decisions and actions. It manages the relationships. It's used to test and understand relationships, helping us know when relationships might be problematic, damaged, threatened, or at risk of going in the wrong direction. It's about ensuring that everyone knows everything they need to know as and when they need it. This leads to domain number five, which is reporting. Reporting is a recognition that we need a lot of information and it needs to be accurate. Reporting is the idea of ensuring that we have certainty, that the accurate reported information is managed, 
the processes that do this are managed and that the reporting is correct. It's the kind of information that we need it to feed into decisions. So knowing about things is the first step, defining the metrics, deciding the metrics. What are we going to, to measure? What's important? Then gathering it. How do we gather it? How often do we gather it? How do we report on it? Reporting on it usefully. Do we report on it visually or is there some other format? How is this information shared? Who needs it? Who doesn't need it? How do we make sure it's accurate? And how do we check to see whether it really is accurate and avoid assumptions? We need a certain certainty of the facts themselves. Those facts that are used to make some of the most crucial decisions that our project will suffer. We also use these reports to identify threats, risks, problems, trends, patterns, indicators that suggest that whilst it might look okay now, it may not be in the future. These kinds of macro points of information and understanding, they feed back into things like governance or into expectation management or value understanding. Number six is our methods or methodology. This is the how we go about things. Having specific methodology is essentially how do we project? When do we waterfall? When do we agile? And how do we do both of those or something in between? It's our official methods. And this gives an alignment for everyone involved or even those external. It provides us with a common vocabulary. It provides us with predictable action steps. And it makes the collaboration and cooperation between those contributing people much easier if they know what the method is meant to be. If they know the cycle of things, if they know the cycle of decision-making, when and how things happen. Methods also provide checklists and catch-alls, a kind of dragnet that helps us make sure we haven't missed anything important. Because us leaning on methodologies is a way of providing us answers, or at the very least, questions that we must find an answer to in order to make sure that our project is operating smoothly. Number seven is about our resources. And this is everything that gets used and consumed in the creation of anything that goes on in our project. This includes the people, the materials, the tools, the infrastructure, the funds. We always have running costs. We need to use funds. These can be things like wages or other costs that we have, but time is also a running cost. And usually time is not replenishable. Patience is also a running cost. It's a resource that we consume. And it is replenishable, but not easily. Our productivity within our project means that we need people. People need to get paid. But we need people with particular skills. All the skills. The right skills. Having the right skills and knowledge and experience, that's a resource that we need to draw upon. We need to know what of those resources we need and make sure that we have those resources. Capability is a kind of resource we need to understand. Costs need detailed and accurate reporting. We need to know precisely how much money we're spending on what. And we also need to be able to predict a lot of that. But any costs have an opportunity cost. There's something else we could be spending this money on. So we need to know exactly what that is costing us so that we can know what that opportunity cost really looks like. Sunk costs is another issue that we sometimes have to deal with in project leadership impacting our decisions because we don't want to waste something that we've already invested in something else, even when we really understand that that money should be considered already lost. 
these things influence the decisions around resources. And really only good and timely decisions on resources will help us avoid wasting any of them. Eighth and final domain is innovation. And this is also about adapting. It's about flexibility. It's about those empirical situations where we might need to learn as we go and respond to that. It includes iterative scenarios where we're doing something, learning from it, and then doing something different. It can also include bigger things like a major reset of intentions or scope or attitudes. It is where we look at or look for alternatives, a different way of doing something, a different method, different tools, different ideas, different people, perhaps. This is how things get better. We never stand still. We must learn and we must improve from everything we do in order to do better. So this is partly the continual improvement paradigm where we're constantly looking to improve what we're already doing. But it's also the let's bring in the new thing or the new idea or at least explore it because something more radical might bring even greater benefits. Sometimes it can be new value, new benefits realization. It can bring about changes to the scope, changes to the value that we're seeking. New project outcomes, perhaps. In Agile, that's a very regular and innate thing. In other iterative project styles, it's at least a recurring phenomenon. But even in Waterfall, we never ignore these things. It's about all those outcomes from each domain that guides our approach to how best to achieve them. Now, amongst all of these different domains, different leadership styles will make some of these easier and some of them perhaps harder. There is no one-type-fits-all arrangement. And there's a constant balancing act between how much time, effort, energy, thought, consideration we have to put in any of these different domains. A leadership style with an emphasis on interaction may make engagement easier, but it might make communications harder because they might more often be informal or undocumented. A leaning towards methods might make collaboration easier in our project, but might also lose sight of some of the value and benefits realization in the process if we're too stuck in sticking to a way of doing things. A focus too much on value could lead to problems with resources being consumed too fast, or a stricter governance and risk management may hinder or weaken our ability to innovate and adapt or vice versa. These domains are things we need to be good at, and leadership adds a dimension above management to all of these. These are the areas in which leadership brings an edge above regular project management. They all matter, and they all need to be handled well to make our project successful. This is the end of lecture 2b. Hello and welcome to lecture 2C of MGI 514 Project Management Leadership. This is Brendan Birchmore. Today we're going to talk about some of the fundamental communication issues that are always relevant to project leaders. Much of what we need to achieve in any project comes down to the human beings themselves and how they share their knowledge, their ideas and information. And it's the same whether we're talking about projects or other business issues or any human issues. Communications is often a key to getting it all done right, the way we need it. Leaders are communicators. They have to be. 
and they have to be able to communicate with context. They create understanding, and amongst a group of people, they create an aligned understanding, which then facilitates the outcomes that the project requires. At a simpler level, project managers often use reactive communications. So they talk to the problems or the obstacles, or they talk to people about the problems. They have a fix-it approach. And often, those problems have come about due to an uncertainty that didn't need to be there in the first place. It's that uncertainty that is our enemy. Uncertainty is the very reason why projects were invented and exist in the first place. And they manifest themselves most often through communications that are inadequate. And so a reactive communications approach is often using their time to solve communication problems that they allowed to take place in the beginning. So we're chasing our tail. In addressing this, we need to look at context and alignment. The answer to this problem doesn't always lie in the content of the message. It's the context that is a relationship between the state of affairs or the situation and the individual forces applied to it. So context is the relationship between the general information or the environment and any specific force that needs to apply within that environment. To have context is to know how any specific force or influence can, would or should apply to that situation. Understanding of something can only really happen when the context is correct. Alignment is when that context is shared amongst many people involved in the project. Ensuring that alignment is the project leader's job. But communications is not just a downward, outward broadcast of information. Communication is bi-directional and relies on feedback or preparation to understand how best it should work. A project leader needs to be able to communicate not just with project resources and participants, but with allies, with suppliers, with customers. External stakeholders, they equally depend on the effectiveness of the project leader's communications. So what makes this difficult? What brings context out of alignment? It begins with perspective. A person's innate internal perspective is usually what makes it more difficult for them to grab hold of the context that they need to understand the details. Perspective is unique. It's personal to every individual and it's accumulated. It is the sum total of everything that they've experienced in their life's journey, and the most recent elements, most importantly. So perspective is a person's attitude, their internal thought processes, and this is what greatly influences their context. It's a kind of filter. It determines how and what we think about something, because our perspective is our method and our result of assigning value judgments to things. Perspective is a result of our decisions of what's more important than something else. So when we apply that perspective to any context, we're filtering what's important to us in that contextual environment. So we're filtering what matters. And when we see those differently to someone else, we're going to see the context differently, and we're going to see the message and the communications differently. And because everyone has their own perspective, the process of shaping these disparate perspectives is similar to what we would do with the process of creating alignment. In project leadership, this is crucial because everything we need to accomplish in our project requires the alignment of those resources that need to work together on it. 
So one of the goals in our communications is to adjust a person's perspective when necessary. But we can't just tell people how to think. They will defend their existing thought patterns because it's based on everything that they've experienced and who they see themselves as being. We can't just tell them to change their perspective. But to alter it, we need to first know what their perspective is. To create a logical journey from their current perspective to a new and more appropriate perspective that will allow them to see the context more clearly or more appropriately, we need to listen to them. We need to understand their perspective to know where that journey needs to go so that we can create communications with them that will take them on that journey. What we're listening for is their understanding of the consequences. Most human behavior is based on our understanding of what the consequences are of our decisions, of how we respond to things. So what we're listening for is to know what they see are the consequences of all the stimuli that are relevant in the project or in the issue that we're discussing. Because how they see those consequences, what they believe those consequences to be, that's what's going to have the biggest impact on their perspective, which is what's going to impact their context. So if we can realign their expectations of what the consequences are of certain forces or stimuli or causes, then we can adjust their perspective and help them see the correct context. Now we have to deal with a lot of different stakeholders, but the consequences allow us to break up any kind of stakeholder based on the dominant consequence that they are most worried about relating to our project. We break these three consequences down into investment, influence, and pain. Investment consequences, or those who are most interested in them, they're the ones who are injecting resources. It could be their time and effort. It could be finance. It could be something else that they're in control over that they're giving to the project. And every time people invest in a project or its outcomes, there's an opportunity cost for whatever else that investment could go into. The second consequence is the influence. The project and its outcomes will change the power and influence equation. Some will gain influence, others will lose influence. And what they see as those consequences, short-term and long-term, will influence their perspective on everything to do with the project. Pain is related to those who are expecting to suffer or expecting not to suffer. From one direction, it's existing pain that the project might have been created to help solve. And so the expectation of easing that pain will greatly shape the perspectives that those stakeholders have about our project. Or those that aren't experiencing pain but are expecting things to get worse for them as a result of this project, they're going to have also an altered perspective on what this project means to them. But in order for us to truly understand what any stakeholder believes their consequences to them would be, and for us to then begin the process of altering those expectations of consequences, we need to avoid our assumptions. We need to check our assumptions. An assumption is an unconfirmed condition that is relied upon as if it were fact in the making of a decision. When we make assumptions about someone else, their perspective, their expectations, we go ahead and make decisions about how to communicate with them, and we may be wrong. Assumptions are not guesses. A guess is just a guess. But when we rely upon it in a decision we make, that's when it becomes an assumption, and that's when that becomes a risk. When we assume about someone's perspective, 
they may have the wrong context, they may misinterpret information, and their understanding may be misaligned, resulting in decisions that they make that are not in line with what the project needs of them. Sometimes one of the laws of communication will help us here. This is the three-step message delivery. You tell someone what you're going to tell them, you tell them, and then you tell them what you just told them. Some people like to add a fourth element that says that you get them to tell back to you what you just told them. But in essence, this is a three-step process of prepare, deliver, confirm. What we often do is miss the preparation. We do the delivery. We might do a little bit of confirmation, but we might end up confirming the message, the content. We have to also confirm the context, the perspective, the understanding. So preparation includes testing assumptions about perspectives, testing assumptions about what we think they believe the consequences would be, correcting that, adjusting that as needed so that we can be sure that they have the right context so that they can understand what we need them to. But then, of course, things change. No matter how clearly we might have an aligned understanding at some point, a context will change. Consequences will change. Influences change. People change. Situations change. We often need to adapt and evolve our context, our understanding, and our alignment. We often need to be ahead of that curve, constantly searching for our assumptions, searching for changes in the consequences that people believe are real. We need to listen and learn from everyone to understand whether or not they're still aligned. Communicate more often, not just for the sake of issuing instructions and sending out messages, but to help us understand where their head is at, what their perspective is, whether or not they're aligned. We don't simply ignore them and assume that we know what they're thinking. Because ultimately what we need as a project leader is for people to make the right or good decisions. And we know that a project is nothing but millions of decisions, and our communications is at the heart of helping people have everything they need in order to make good decisions for the project. The right understanding aligned with others based on the right context. Every bit of information that is shared, every message, it all feeds into a conclusion. People that are listening, people that are reading, their goal is to get to the conclusion of what does it mean and make their decision. Everything beyond that ends up a little bit wasted. Just like all those situations where we've been listening to someone else and suddenly we start to get bored with what they're saying, that's usually because we've reached a conclusion about what that means to us. We've reached a conclusion about what's going on here and what we're going to do about it. As a project leader, we want to make sure that everything we say, everything we share, everything we express counts towards a useful conclusion, but no more than that. So we need to read the audience and make sure that we get the important pieces of information out first. And the most important information is the alignment of the context so that everything else can land fairly squarely right where it needs to in their mind and in their understanding. We can make complex things be more simple by focusing on their consequences, which once other people have concluded and understood them, they can move on and get on with what work needs to be done. We're often communicating with individual people and we need to think of them as such before we speak and before we write. This is the end of lecture 2C. Hello 
and welcome to lecture 2D of MGI 514 Project Management Leadership. My name is Brendan Birchmore and today we will look at the overall concept of project definition from the perspective of the project leader. Now in this case we're not strictly talking about the project management body of knowledge definition of a project. We're talking about the human definition of a project. And again, this brings out the thing we've covered in the previous discussion about perspective. Because this is about what the project is really here for. And of course, whatever we put in any initial documents or statements or any written word, what's really going to matter is how those words are interpreted and what is meant and perceived by those who read them, especially those who have some influence on our project. Now remember in the last discussion we talked about three consequences in projects. There is the investment consequence about the investment of resources, the influence consequence about the ups and downs of political gain of individuals, and then there's the pain consequence, the actual benefits that are expected to come out of the other end of our project to alleviate pain or potential pain. So everything that defines the project will be measured or filtered in this light in some way by the people involved that make the decisions. And they're not discrete. People will have multiple perspectives. There'll be those with uh, a say in the investment who will have that consequence clearly in mind, but they might also stand to gain or lose influence as a result of it. They might also be involved with the pain. They might have some accountability or some responsibility that they feel for the pain that's being delivered. So people will have more than one perspective on more than one set of consequences. So the job that our upfront definition of what this project is all about, what it needs to do is it needs to survive these highly disparate, highly subjective perspectives that might be applied to it. And it needs to be resilient against those. So how we do define it needs to use these different consequence definitions in order to make sure that they are aligned with what people are really looking to learn from the information they find in a project definition. So there are some words. The first step, let's look at the different words. Now we've heard a few already. People have used words like scope, like project charter, uh, like a benefit statement, the purpose of the project, the mission statement. These are diff different terminologies that are used that are all possibly meaning same or similar things. Now, the words and all these words and what they mean to a given company, what they mean in a generic sense and what they mean to individuals, these differences are all part of the issue. So the words we use for these, they kind of, they do and they don't matter. They do matter because we have to use something to convey an understanding of what's meant. But it doesn't necessarily matter which ones we use. There's no correct way of saying, well, you have to use the word scope for this and you have to use the word benefit for that. What matters is that all of the important people involved have a shared and aligned understanding of what is truly meant by the words we're using. So a definition of what these words mean when we use them is often very useful as a starting point to help people get aligned on what we're going to talk about. So the meaning of these key words matters. So we should choose our definitions of those words and stick to them. And we have to do that before we can effectively define our project. So this is the starting point for our alignment strategy, having the same perspective on the terminology that's used. 
Now, when we talk about defining a project, a lot of project managers see this as a more technical function. It's more pure business analysis kind of work. A lot of project managers prefer to look at the facts, make some clean business-oriented decisions about how this project is to live and breathe. But all of the facts that we use all derive from human beings. They are all perceived by human beings and they all affect human beings, etc. It's a very human process. The first step is to begin with the objective. And this is where we look at the, the pain or the need or the problem, the core reason that justifies some kind of investment or the suggestion of an investment for a project. What's wrong? Now, what's wrong can also be an opportunity that's not yet being realized. It doesn't necessarily need to be something broken in the organization. It could be something that they want to do but are not yet doing. That missed opportunity is the thing that is effectively broken or wrong that needs to be fixed. But these things are all incredibly subjective and we all do see them a little bit differently because we all have slightly different roles, different objectives, different uh, functions within our organization. So we're all going to see what these pains, these needs, these problems are from the perspective of our little point of reference in the organization. They're not necessarily very aligned, at least not in the beginning. So let's remember how any of these things are perceived and it's all based on the consequences. So the question is how does the objective of our project change the consequences for its investment, for the influence of those involved and for the, the pain or the problem or the opportunity. Now. It starts with the pain, that's the trigger. But then that pain must result in a decision to invest to alleviate that pain or problem. Whether or not that decision is yes or no, or how well that decision is made, is often going to be handled based on how it changes the influence factors, the influence consequences of those involved. So if the benefit is very strong and powerful and it suggests that the investment is very worthwhile, it may be difficult for those who might oppose the project to actually prevent it. But that doesn't mean they can't undermine it or weaken it or weaken its chances for success. It can also be a situation where projects that have only a fairly limited degree of promise where the investment is actually worth worthwhile to achieve the objectives or purpose might actually get up and become a project simply because certain people will see will, will stand to gain influence out of it and they'll invest and make their effort worthwhile in making that project come to life so the role of the influence consequences is going to shape the accuracy of the true test between the pain that's being solved and the benefits of alleviating that pain and the investment that's expected to be required to achieve that. How clear and absolute that understanding is will be based on the shifts of influence that occur. So these statements need to be tested fairly thoroughly. I mean, the worst case scenario is situations like we make a significant investment, but for the wrong benefit. Or that perhaps the influence has been grossly misplaced in making that decision. So we're trying to define what outcomes will result from the project in terms of the consequences for those involved. So 
This is about what will the project actually do. But not in some pure, altruistic, abstract sense. No, it's about what will it do for you, and what will it do for you, and what will it do for you, and you, and you, and you. So it's not this abstract goal of higher ideals and altruistic benefits for this neutral third-party thing we call the organization. Because that neutral third-party thing called an organization is merely the collection of individual perspectives and subjective ideas and expectations. So we need to address the specific meanings of each of those in many cases. In doing that, sometimes it's just as important to really be clear on what the project isn't as much as what the project truly is. Because we have the gross opportunity for a lot of perspectives to shape what other people think the project is, sometimes the best way of tackling that is to say, well, this is what the project is, and we can see some immediate assumptions as to what that might mean for certain people. So in, as part of our definition, we clarify what the project also is not, and therefore we set the boundaries of what the project is rather than just the potential of what the project is. Because if those boundaries aren't set, there's a lot of opportunity for people to perceive the potential to be greater than that. This is where we look at the difference between exclusions versus omissions. There's a very stark difference between the two. And omission is something that's simply left out. This is where we might say that the purpose of the project is to achieve X, Y, Z objectives. And at some point, sometime later, you get a stakeholder that says, but I understood that to mean that it would apply in this situation and in this way, and that you would do this. And you didn't specifically exclude that. I just thought you must have forgotten it. You must have left it out. You must have forgotten me. So I'm going to now agitate to make sure that you include me and my problems in your project, because you should have. Well, what's our comeback from that? If their perspective of what the project's objective were all about could be reasonably to have included their issues, well, maybe we have a battle on our hands. But if it's an exclusion, that is a specifically defined thing that was tested at the time and a decision actually reached to make sure that it was not part of the scope. This is where you you can reply to that situation and say, well, actually, no, uh, we didn't forget you. We just decided to exclude you. Now, that might be just as challenging in its own way, but at least it's not going to be an argument about the definition of what the project was meant to achieve. But even when we have achieved what we feel is a clear and shared understanding of why we are about to embark upon this grand scheme we call a project, how do we know if we're going to succeed? There's a number of things we must think about and have discussed and have concluded and decided as part of the process of defining our project. And one of the more important of these is our success criteria, because it's another one of these highly subjective elements with a lot of stakeholders having a say in what is termed as successful or not. It's an important part of defining the outcome of this project. In defining a success criteria, how is it going to be measured? What's going to be considered successful? Who and how is that going to be determined? This is going to come back from a perspective of is our project going to be something where it's built as a fit-for-purpose project or is it going to be built to specification? There's a major difference between these two things. A fit-for-purpose project is where we are focusing on the benefits and we might have to be flexible with exactly what gets delivered at the end because we are learning about how the things we're creating 
are going to provide our benefits. And it's not acceptable for us to say, well, we gave you what you asked for and we don't care if it works or not. If it's fit for purpose, we have to care about whether or not it works. But in a built-to-specification project, it's a little bit different. A built-to-specification means that we are relying upon technical expertise in a very specific context to determine what is the success criteria. And that definition must be agreed upon between project investors and project customers to understand and agree that it's this technical specification approach and how it's defined and what it really means that's going to be the determinant of whether or not the project succeeds. So there's a lot of potential for variation in any of these factors. And the project definition should include an understanding of how big a variation is acceptable. How certain are we of what the successful outcome needs to look like? Is this going to be a lot of variation that we're going to have to deal with? And how far are we going to let that variation go? And how are we going to manage that variation along the way? And if we're going to manage variation, well, what are the priorities? If things have to give and take, what's going to be more important? Is speed the most important? Is How important is schedule compared to how important is quality compared to how important is cost and investment? Uh, and compared to how important is the balancing of these things. Understanding the priorities is an important part of defining how this project is going to roll out across its lifetime. We also need to have a clear understanding of the major and obvious obstacles and constraints. What are the clear things that are right at the beginning going to be apparent might influence our project? And if they might influence it in a negative way, or there might be unknowns, what are the significant risks, the gotchas? These are important things to consider as part of the project definition statement. And lastly, again, decisions. Decisions are the king of project management. How and who makes what decisions? When do we make them? How do we make them? The big ones. The more variation we have agreed upon uh, and the more uncertainty there is with things like priorities and risks and constraints, the more important our decision processes are going to be. And deciding and understanding and defining how that is going to happen. Now, all of these can be at a very high level, but what needs to under be, be conveyed is a context, an aligned context of what is meant by all of these factors. And of course, authority is the final determinant. Who can officially approve anything? And there are two main things that sit under the category of authority, and that's the inputs and outputs. What I mean by that is that's the investment, and the success. Who is making authoritative decisions about changes to investment of resources, of effort, of money, etc.? And who is authorized to make judgments and decisions about results? Is things of a certain quality? Is it successful? Is it adequate? Is it good enough? Is it on time? Is it on budget? Understanding the authority processes in those two ends of the project equation will determine how we handle the authority of all the things in between. So this official statement uh, that we get at the end of this, this official understanding uh, is often our best defense against dissent that happens a bit later. As per the example of an omission that I, I gave earlier, it's where we go back to when things might be difficult, challenging, etc. When And it's usually to do with people's uh, realization of consequences where they don't like the consequences anymore or they've discovered something or their perspective has shifted, maybe for the wrong reasons on what the consequences are going to be. And dissent arises and threatens our project. This 
official set of guidelines of what we're really all about here is going to be the determining factors of how we can deal with all of this. This is our, our bat that we carry behind us, that we sometimes need to swing. It's also our best tool for positive alignment. It's our uh, tool for common understanding. It's the thing we should be using incrementally on an ongoing basis to avoid those unexpected forms of dissent that comes out of it. It's the thing we make sure that everyone continually remains in the same, on the same page and in the same context. So this is where our power comes from. This, this is where our project power comes from. Yes, we have personal power. We might have power of influence. We might have power of personality. We might be a great persuader. But the abstract power of our project comes from the depth and clarity of how it's defined in the beginning. It's the disembodied power as given by the collective approval of those at the time to the abstract form of the project itself. Everything else is just personal power and everything else is based on influence and the perspective of individuals, which we are constantly working on and which we know is constantly changing. So if we can nail this starting point with all of these parameters adequately worked out and conclusions reached and decisions made, then we have a project and hopefully a project leader. This brings us to the end of Lecture 2D. Hello and welcome to Lecture 2E of MGI 514, Project Management Leadership. My name is Brenton Birchmore. This discussion takes a general look at business culture. Now, it's a big topic. It's a big subject to cover. Culture is an accepted or a followed set of norms, values, traditions, which influence the behavior of a group. It leads to phrases like, uh, this is how we do things around here. That's an embodiment of what culture does in an organization or group. But we don't have one single culture. Everyone who's working in an environment where culture is relevant, it's a combination of different cultures that operate at different layers for those people. They don't exist in isolation. Cultural norms, cultural habits relate to one another, and they're layered a bit like a pyramid. It usually begins with the broadest definitions of identity, how people identify themselves or identify with a particular group. It might often be a particular nation. Different countries have a kind of cultural background that people relate to first. Occasionally, it's even things like ethnicity. Race, species, where people identify with a certain category of people that stretches far beyond what they might perceive as their nation or country. Wherever a person's starting identity comes from, that transcends everything else and creates a starting point from which business culture must find a way to exist. So when we start looking at business culture, we see significant differences between the different cultural backgrounds of business as it's done in different regions and places of the world. Different parts of Europe will behave differently from a cultural perspective. You get different cultures around the Mediterranean compared to what you get in Central and Western Europe, which is different again to what you get in Northern Europe. So we can't even say that there's a single European culture because there's actually many. Asia is even more complex. Southeast Asia, very different from Northeast Asia. For example, great differences in business culture between Korea and Indonesia. But even neighbors like 
China and India have very different business cultures. Industries, too, can have their own cultural bias, even professions within certain industries. What we're mostly interested here is talking about business culture, because this is usually the first level at which a culture can be proactively influenced in some way. It's within reach of our ability to change or influence how people behave within a certain artificial structure that is the business. But what does this business culture do? Well, what does this culture govern? Well, it relates to things like ethics, ethics including our honesty or our industriousness, uh, attitudes towards winning and towards each other. It's etiquette, manners and mannerisms, the ways in which people interact or engage with each other or with other things. It can influence empowerment or communications between people. It will affect how people interact, how they work, what they work at or for, and how hard they work and many other things. And this major force will greatly impact the degree of effort that people make towards the business goals as defined by the business. So this is the role of the company vision. So the company's opportunity to influence its own business culture begins with the vision. That's its starting point. Without a kind of mission statement or positional vision, the company essentially delegates that down to its staff and the people that work with it. So vision gives the company and those within the company a purpose, something to aim their culture towards, a kind of end game that says, well, this is how we want to be, where we want to be, what we want to be seen as. And it's usually a fairly simplistic definition, but it doesn't tell us how to get there. The next layer does this, and this is the values what the company holds in highest regard in terms of its behavior. So this sets guidelines for certain behaviors, limits or standards or expectations. It's a broad template for how we are going to go about achieving the vision, which is the goal that we're aiming for. It has another layer below this, which is where the practices, policies, and the governance of those come from the business. This is the, the tactical part of it. This is where the business does what they say they will do. This is what gets implemented at the various levels and layers of the hierarchy of the organization. Because whilst the vision and the values might get decided at the most highest executive levels, these practices will be determined and created and implemented at various levels of management throughout the organization. So this layer where we have practices, this has the details, this is the methods, this is things we can measure. This is the specifics of how an organization will live up to its values. And they need to match. We obviously need to have practices which ultimately lend themselves and lead towards the adherence to the values, which will ultimately align with the vision of what we want to be. Now these are the core elements. These are the, the big tools. These are the things that have the long handles that give us the most leverage about how we're going to create a business culture. There are details below this. Probably the last thing that the company has a, a good control over is the people themselves. And this is about choosing people that will fit in with everything else that's been decided and determined. People that will align with those values. 
who will work within those practices. Obviously, if we want as an organization to have a culture that follows those values and practices, we're going to want to have people that are willing to do so. Beyond this, we start to get into some more minor details that are going to have less impact on how well the culture is carried through. But business culture to the individual can often seem big and powerful, so much so that individuals seem to be powerless against it. How do we do anything about this enormous beast that is our local business culture? Well, the reality is not quite that stark. Culture relies on subscription. It's a form of behavior that relates to conformity. It therefore requires a small amount of perhaps apathy or at least followership. It means that people will work within an environment of what they believe is expected of them because that's the easy part. That is the satisfying or comfortable path. So if individuals tend to lead in a new direction and in a better direction, others are likely to follow. For a culture to continue as it is, it requires that no one change it. So if an individual changes it and others follow suit, they are in effect changing the business culture. So go back to the phrase we used before, culture is about how things are done around here. Well, if someone starts doing things differently and refuses to back down and conform with how everyone else does it, then there's a chance that others will follow their method and their way of doing things. And that may then leverage and cascade and multiply through the culture of the organization. Now, what we've talked about so far is business culture as determined at the highest levels of the organization. And that kind of business culture is meant to transcend the various professions, and the teams and the departments within the business. But we know that that's not truly the case. We know, to pick an example, that sales teams and departments will have cultural elements that are quite different from technical departments, for example. We know that finance and operations will have some different approaches to certain things. So clearly there are more narrow examples of culture on display within pretty much any organization. The definition of what are accepted norms can be narrowed down to an even more detailed perspective. Now, the perpetuity of these sort of cultures, it comes down from the followership or, or the apathy or the willingness to simply follow and conform that we've talked about before. But culture can also be defended due to identity. People will often rally to protect and defend a culture, a behavior, a norm that they are comfortable with, because to them, it forms part of an identity that they want to retain. It aligns with how they see themselves or how they see a larger group of which they wish to, wish to be a part of and identify with. Everyone identifies with something and quite often will defend what they identify with. They will support it, often even against better logic, sometimes even to their detriment. This is because our relationship with our identity is more fundamentally emotional than it is logical. So for many people, when their culture appears to be threatened, it's their identity that they feel is being threatened. And they will defend themselves and their sense of self by defending their culture or what they see as being their culture. 
So they'll often defend their larger collective grouping of which they wish to feel a part of and they wish to allow to continue. And this is where the company's choice of people and their ability to choose who joins the organization can have its greatest impact. A company who employs mostly people who are inclined to follow will mean that the cultural norms that exist within that organization are likely to stick. They're likely to have longevity. They're likely to be strong and have a lot of momentum behind them. But if we employ a great deal of people who choose to lead to themselves and to be more independent, the culture of the organization will evolve faster. How do we know if a person's culture might fit with the vision of the organization? It's based on their values. That's the point of alignment that we're looking for. Do they line up the values of the individuals with the values of the organization? The practices are merely the way in which it has to happen in this particular organization. Now, the vision is owned by the company and not just exclusively the executives. Often vision is something that's collectively bargained by the organization or large pieces of it. But it's in the values that we're looking to seek alignment with the individuals. The practices then become a bit of a balancing act between how do we really achieve these lofty values and still function in a practical, reasonable environment. So how does leadership influence this? Well, the highest levels of the business will influence the most macro kinds of business culture. They define the vision and they will define the values and they will require the practices that are defined further down in the organization to follow these. They'll then need to align it with themselves and their own behavior and conduct. This is the highest level of authority in the organization. They'll need to live it, embody it, set an example, and they'll need to do this in order to expect any kind of reciprocal behavior from anyone else in the organization but they need to expect that kind of reciprocity. It's very hard for anyone to say, well, do as I say, but not as I do. We know that won't work because that creates hypocrisy as a cultural trait all on its own. Now, things often do get more confused the further down through the company structure you tend to go. How confused this gets depends on the level of engagement by the people within the organization. That is, Engagement is the degree to which those involved with the business consider the culture of the business an important thing. How much do they associate their identity with the way in which things are done? So a low level of engagement will mean a more fluid, less conformative culture, high levels of turnover with people coming and going, perhaps lower morale and lower levels of commitment from the individuals. A higher engagement means a stronger positive identification with the vision, with the values and the culture as it's perceived by the people in it. It's considered to be important in a high engagement situation. So the more closely a company practices its stated culture, the more engagement it will trigger in people, the more engagement it will require in new people that join it. Because culture is more than simply a moral code for a business. It's a kind of guiding light that influences all behavior through all layers of the organization. It's considered by some to be the most important success factor for business. But then again, like all things, 
that fact itself even has a cultural bias all of its own. This brings us to the end of Lecture 2E.